Welcome to Interactive Stack Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the new Privacy Shield Agreement and at the state of GDPR enforcement. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website Euractive.com. This is Euractive's Tech Brief Podcast. Today I'm joined by Max Schrems, the notorious privacy activist and the chair of the NGO NOIB. Hi, Max. Hey there. At the beginning of uh, October, we have seen U.S. President Biden signing this long-awaited executive order for a new EU-U.S. data transfer uh, framework, uh, a new framework that was made necessary by uh, two uh, court cases that bring your name. So I think a lot of people are interested to hear your view on this new setting. So we're analyzing the decisions right now or the executive order. And um, it seems so far that we're pretty much in for a third round. Um, There is two things where there is kind of changes or movements um, towards the, in the new executive order versus the old one. It's not like this executive order came out of, uh, out of the sky and it's all new. A lot of the wording is directly from a previous executive order from 2014 that the court of justice has already rejected. Um, what's new now is that they say that the mass surveillance in the U.S. is going to be what they call proportionate. The problem here is that the European Union and the U.S. government have agreed on the word proportionate, which comes out of the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. If that would be like a European type of proportionality, it would be perfect. It would solve a lot of the problems. The reality is, however, that the U.S. already said that they're not going to apply a European understanding of proportionality but instead they will apply what they call an American understanding of it and will basically continue with these mass surveillance programs. And on that side, you already have the problem that the Court of Justice said this is not proportionate and now basically the executive order simply just says, oh, it is, in our view. Um, And that way the commission and the U.S. government can both walk away and say, oh, we got a solution, but actually the solution is having the same word but disagreeing on the meaning of it. And that is the main problem here. Similarly, there is now the idea of having a court where you can get your situation reviewed. Um, But in reality, it's not a real court. It's an executive body, very similar to the one we had before. Um, And it will always give you the same answer. So if you were under surveillance, you will get the same answer. If you were not under surveillance, you you will get the same answer. If your rights were violated, you will get the same answer. If your rights were not violated, you will get the same answer. If they changed something, you'll get the same answer. If it didn't change anything, you'll get the same answer. Um, And you're not even able to kind of be in front of this court. You can just raise an issue with an authority in Europe who will then in turn raise the issue with with that court or just forward it basically. Um, And then you'll get your rubber stamp answer after a couple of months, no matter what what your claim is. Um, someone on Twitter framed it quite well and said, you know, it's basically a court where you know the judgment before you even filed your lawsuit. Um, and I'm not sure if the Court of Justice will accept that as a Article 47 court as, as required under EU law. So you said you're in for a second round, um, but I think there were a lot of concerns uh, in the European Commission that they really want to avoid a Schrems tree. What do you think would be the consequences for for another 
court ruling against uh, such an agreement. People in the European Commission said that after the first ruling already, that the second attempt is going to be perfect. And then we had Privacy Shield that was killed. Um, and the reality is that, you know, round and round of politicians are basically thinking, let's get a new agreement up and running, knowing it's going to be overturned, maybe, or very likely, but with the intention of, oh, the commission is just sitting for another one and a half years, who knows who's going to be in charge once this problem <laughs> reappears. So I think we're seeing really a ping pong between the Court of Justice and the European Commission. It's very similar than in other privacy cases, if you look, for example, at data retention, where the member states again and again and again try to pass some data retention law, knowing that the Court of Justice is going to overturn it. But because it just takes a couple of years until it's overturned, um, politicians get away with it. And I think that is what we see here as well. Um, obviously, there's all the PR talk that you have to do, that this is going to be very solid and blah, blah, blah. But if you then look at the actual text, you just it's just not there. And that is, I think, the, the reality that, that we are seeing right now. To get uh, the the final green light, this new data transfer framework will have to go uh, through quite a significant process. Uh, it will need uh, the opinion of, of the European Data Protection Board, uh, scrutiny by the member states. So we are looking at probably a one-year-long process. In the meantime, there are some very significant pending cases with data protection authorities, like the Google Analytics case that you contributed to create, uh, the Facebook case uh, in Ireland on transatlantic data flows. Do you think that uh, the DPAs will sort of um, apply a grace period waiting for the new framework to come into place, or will it be inevitable um, that, that data flows have to stop in the meantime? So the DPAs apply grace period for more than two years by now. And um, to be honest, I think we're oftentimes at a point where the data protection authorities are really abusing office by now. They have a clear mandate and the Court of Justice clearly said that these data flows have to be stopped. We just have in the data protection world, oftentimes not always, but but with a lot of the DPAs, executive bodies that are simply absolutely not doing their job. Um, and we have that country by country. Um, I was just recently in a debate in Austria where of about 7,000 complaints, you get about 100, uh, a couple of 120 um, penalties per year. So you have about a 2% chance to ever get a penalty if you, even once there is a complaint against you under the GDPR. In, in Ireland, we have a quota of, of more than 99.9% .9 of cases where there is not a final decision. We really have a huge problem with the data protection authorities of simply not enforcing the law. And that's a, a, a cultural problem um, and, and oftentimes also a resource problem. Um, it's different per country. Some of the DPAs really want to do the job and, and, and are limited by the options that they have. Um, in other countries, you just have a feeling that there is just an absolute unwillingness to, to, to do your job and to do what you want to do. Um, and that is a wider problem. And the only one that right now pushes in the other direction or can do that is to a certain extent the European Commission, but they don't do that either. They're still, to a large extent, the happy song of the GDPR is perfect, um, everything is working fine, move on. Um, and then we see the Court of Justice being rather critical in some of the judgments and saying, you know, that, that's a fundamental right. And I think 
we really have to step back and there cannot be a grace period on the fundamental right. We cannot have a grace period and just, you know, prohibit demonstrations for two years. We cannot have a grace period and, you know, not grant the right to asylum for a couple of years because we just don't feel like it. Um, but in privacy, for whatever reason, we have a grace period that in reality lasts since 1995 when the first directive was was passed. Um, and we see that with the GDPR. We see that with the Court of Justice judgments that the executive is simply not enforcing the law here. Um, and that is a really big problem. And um, I think words like grace period insinuate that that's all fine and all cool and all nice. Um, and I know that the industry is trying to kind of push that narrative of, oh, it's so complicated, oh, we can't do this. But the reality is there's a clear law, there's a clear fundamental right in, in Article 8 of the Charter. And we're becoming more and more of a laughingstock, again, after the old directive was a laughingstock. The GDPR is moving in that direction internationally as well. We, we, we promised as the European Union that we're going to solve this issue and that there's going to be serious enforcement and serious penalties. Um, but the reality is we don't have that. The reality is you get away uh, with almost anything in the privacy world. With some exceptions, there's the, you know, uh, the PR fine that, that is pumped out once or twice a year so that you can see there's something done. But if you look at, you know, 10,000s of complaints where people say my data was misused in my specific situation and there is no remedy, then then we have a very serious issue. And I think the data transfers are one of the kind of obvious situations here. Um, but people have these situations every day in, in their life if they actually want to claim their rights. Let me try to uh, challenge you a bit on, on that narrative, because, of course, um, DPAs are not here to, to defend their work. So uh, two arguments we hear very often uh, in relation to what you just said is that first, it is not just uh, a matter of percentage of cases that are being addressed, but the fact that, you know, when you talk about one big cross-border case of a big tech company, it has impact on thousands of other cases on millions of people and it's much more it cannot be compared and put in the same basket as you know uh, an hairdresser uh, newsletter um, and and the second thing is um, there is cautious from the dpa's perspective because they don't want to lose in court uh, which which is understandable and, and it's sort of trying to avoid the the mistakes that were done in the past, uh, especially if we look at, at competition world. So how would you respond to these two points? I think the basket part is, is not making much sense, to be honest, because we don't see movement in either type of case. We still see it in small cases where, as NOIB, we have more than 600 cases pending. And really, we have access requests that are between Austria and Germany, same language, same culture, same everything. And they're waiting for three years to get a decision. And by law, you should get your access request within a month. So literally, we get tons of emails from people with these small cases that are saying, you know, the GDPR is useless and this is useless. And we have to, you know, actually, in these cases, we have to defend it and say, you know, please try, you know, push, pushing for your rights. But people just give up. Same thing is true for these large cases. If you look at the Facebook case, it's lasting since 2003. So it's nine years now that I filed a complaint in Ireland. And there is no decision. We had two court of justice decisions. I think there is shitloads of guidance, um, but it's simply not put forward. 
And, and that is a problem. And I don't think that there is a way to, you know, argue around that. Um, I think we really have to talk about resources. We really have to talk about training. Um, and I don't want to like say that there are people sitting there that don't want to do the job. But the reality is that the job is simply not done and we have to really go into it and, and see how we can move that forward. Uh, for example, the European Commission is right now thinking about getting a procedure regulation up and running to clarify procedures more because that is a huge problem. That gets me to the second part, the, the courts. Um, we see that and we see that now with a lot of the references to the Court of Justice as well, that the, a lot of the courts still view the GDPR as, as too much, as, as, as some law that has to be killed somehow. And you oftentimes read that between the line in, in, in a lot of the judgments where judges seek new problems, seek new issues that, that cannot be done. Um, and there's a whole industry that supports that. So we first had in Brussels lobbying the idea that in a GDPR, there have to be, you know, um, what they call a risk-based approach and flexibility in the law. And that was all the keywords that were used to say, let's write a law that is not that clear. Um, and that came out of the industry to a large extent. Now, a couple of years later, you hear the same industry players or their lawyers saying, oh, the law is so unclear, we really shouldn't enforce it because no one knows what it really means. And that's extremely cynical. If you were included in both types of discussions, first in Brussels when we drafted the law, and now in actual litigation, you hear representatives of the same companies first saying we need to kind of water it down, and now saying, oh, it's also clear. And then they use exactly these issues to go to court um, and actually litigate against DPAs. And that is a problem. That is also a problem for the DPAs uh, because that legal certainty is oftentimes lacking. However, the answer, again, cannot be that we don't enforce it, um, but that we you know, get these cases decided, that we get uncertainty in the law decided by the courts. And um, a lot of it will, unfortunately, end up at the court of justice because that is the institution that has to you know, provide the clarity that politics oftentimes doesn't provide. Um, but I think that's the way forward. The way forward cannot be that we'd rather just not enforce it because we're worried that there's going to be litigation thereafter. The reality is if you go against any of these big companies, especially, it will be litigated anyways. Even if they have no point in litigation, they will just litigate it because it, it gives them another five or six or 10 years to not pay, pay their fine. And at the current rate of inflation, that, that gives you 10% of a discount per year. So they will do that anyways. Um, and I think we just have to be prepared for that. We have to make sure that the DPAs have the personnel, the um, also procedural knowledge to win these cases. And, and that is the way forward. I don't think the way forward is to, to just not enforce stuff. You mentioned the um, upcoming EU proposal on streamlining the procedural aspects of, of data protection probes at the EU level. Um, this is something that um, we, we have heard coming from first the European Data Protection Supervisor, then the chair of the EDPB. Uh, how significant do you think this, um, this initiative will be? And, and what is it that uh, policymakers shouldn't get wrong uh, with this initiative? Um, I think it's extremely significant. It's just extremely unsexy. Like no one was ever voted in for procedural law. <laughs> but in the end, that's that's exactly the problem where, where oftentimes stuff gets stuck. Um, so we're very happy that this this idea is, is now moving forward. Um, the big problem is I think 
first of all, there's a time issue. The commission is only in for another one and a half years. And for EU um, reasons, that's a limited time to get anything passed. The second thing is we we need a very good and deep analysis of the problem. And I think so far we have you know, bullet point lists of problems. Um, and we're, we have our own that, that we're supporting right now and, and providing. Um, but I think we need a more holistic, maybe even academic approach to this of, of how procedures can be structured, how we have similarities and how we can frame that in the work that in a way that we don't override national procedures because that's politically not going to fly. Um, but that we find an, an in-between solution where we say, okay, generally this and that procedure applies to the situation, but then there's going to be these minimum things or these steps that we do the same way throughout Europe. I think there is potential for that because usually in national procedure law, the DPAs have a lot of leeway of structuring the procedure of doing one thing first and then the, the other. Um, so it may not even conflict with national law, but you need on a European level, a certain like, you know, let's do one, two, three, four, five, because what we see in the procedures right now is that they do seven first, then six, then maybe one, then four, and then they disagree who is even has jurisdiction on all of that, and you start the whole process anew. Um, and that means in reality that right now we have, I, I got to lie, around 500 cases that are cross-country as NOIP, and we did not see a single cross-country decision so far after four and a half years of the GDPR being in operation. And that in reality means that as a European, if your case is cross-country, you in reality don't get a decision. The, the EDBB you know, blasts out that they have, I don't know, a couple of hundred decisions that they did so far cross-country. But if you think that we have more than 400 million Europeans where we have 10,000s of complaints, probably 100,000s a year, um, and we overall have a couple of hundred decisions that are cross-country, you, you can do the math that that system is not working. Uh, like, it sounds nice if you say, you know, 300, whatever the number is exactly. But if you compare it to the numbers of complaints and and how many of them are definitely going to be cross-country, you realize that this is, is just not working well. I think it's extremely important that the EDPS kind of recognize that. And they, for example, had this conference saying, how can we actually enforce the GDPR? And that was, I think, important to just recognize the problem. Um, the EDPB is now also having personnel that actually works on exactly these issues. And, and I think we see the first movement here and, and see that, that it's moving. We still, however, have some people probably in the process that, that are still on the denial phase. Um, and I think gradually that, that, that moves forward. Um, but um, I think the, the big change here could really be this procedural regulation if it's drafted well and if it's drafted in a smart way and, 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 and done in the right way. Um, and right now it looks very good. I think everybody is, is very much interested in getting this done. Uh, there's also hardly an argument against having proper procedures. So I think politically it's a no-brainer. Um, it's more of an art of doing this the right way. And it's whoever writes that I have a lot of respect for <laughs> because it's a very tricky one. Um, but that could solve a lot of the problems in, in kind of the engine room of the GDPR, which again is not sexy, but but is, is what gets you results in the end. And let's say this uh, gets done and dusted. Um, what else, uh, what would be the other main obstacles for an effective GDPR enforcement uh, in your view? Do you think that there should be some sort of uh, reopening or reforming of the GDPR in the next mandate? 
Um, I think no one wants to open their GDPR. That's not because there wouldn't be enough things you could solve. I, th I mean, personally, I think you could cut the GDPR in half and, and still work well. And I think there's a lot of like paperwork that was introduced that, that doesn't make that much sense in reality. Um, and that is stuff where I think there may be wide political agreement to cut back on it. Um, at the same time, everybody knows once it's going to be reopened, we're going to have millions and millions of euros spent on lobbying um, and we're going to have the whole GDPR drama run out of time. So I don't think anybody has any appetite to reopen it. Um, and that's sad because I think the GDPR is, I mean, the, the, the least stupid privacy law we have in the world. It could be improved and it will be improved at some point. I just think right now there's so many reasons not to do that. And, and I agree with, with that assessment that we should rather keep it as it is. Sorry, but isn't it a bit uh, self-defeating attitude to say oh, we, we cannot take lobbying, um, therefore we don't we don't uh, we don't change the law? <laughs> exactly, from a t democratic perspective, that's super sad. I mean, if politics says we'd rather not decide because the lobbying is going to kill us, that maybe says a lot about how lobbying works or and 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 how we have a problem there. Um, and it's also interesting because um, I mean, I'm not a Brussels insider, you and everybody else on the, on the podcast probably knows more about that. But as a citizen, you wonder if, if your decision makers say, oh, rather not make a new decision because we may not sustain the, the pressure from the industry. Um, and that that is problematic. And, and I think that that probably warrants a whole series of podcasts in itself. But I'm not an expert on that. Um, and I think what, what we really in the meantime need to do is, first of all, we need to really enforce it more. And, and that is what we see when I talk to industry, they say, we understand that that's not legal what we're doing. We understand that that's, you know, at least a gray zone or like seriously dark. Um, but the reality is my management doesn't give me the money to change it because there's not going to be a penalty anyways. And that is the kind of rationale of companies not to comply with. So we need this general deterrence, as you call it in law, this feeling of, oh, there could be a consequence. So lot, let's not speed with 250 kilometers an hour on the Autobahn. Let's maybe do 140 if it's 130 and be somewhat within the limits. No one like wants to have, you know... 100% permanent enforcement of everything that I don't think that's realistic or anything desirable. But if you just open your phone and, you know, every other app is literally just breaking the law as their main business model, then, then we do have an enforcement problem. And I think that's the one part. The other part about how to get this done is there is a couple of opportunities in civil litigation. Um, and there is the Collective Redress Directive coming up the next year that may give some options. And, and right now, there's also a couple of cases on, uh, for example, damages for people. So um, if people can you know, bring a claim and at least get 500 bucks or so, it's realistic that someone brings a claim like that. Unfortunately, there we currently have an advocate general opinion that came out a couple of weeks ago that, that again, is, is more really trying to cut back on the GDPR. And it's also structurally not very stringent, like if you read it... Um, it's really hard to, as a, as a person knowing the law well, to to even remotely take it seriously in some points because it it really departs from fundamental structures and and, and principles of the GDPR. Um, but if we would have reasonable damages, for example, the civil courts could be in our avenue, and the civil courts usually are also more used to fierce litigation than than the DPAs maybe are. 
um, and could be another avenue, especially in countries where the DPAs don't don't have the personnel, don't have the options of enforcement, um, and and don't also have the the expertise oftentimes to to really dive into stuff. Um, the civil courts would be an option, and they're usually, at least in most countries, uh, and also staffed the right way. Um, but so far, there is still this kind of blockade there that that also holds back civil litigation a lot. So that would be for us another area to watch to see if if, if this moves forward. Last week, you have presented an update on your cookie project. Um, how, how is that going? Um, I think that is actually a very interesting project, especially if if we think about how to do enforcement. So what we did there is that we basically automatically scanned websites that had cookie banners that I think we all hate, um, that didn't have an option to say no and and you know used weird colors to to hide the no option and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what was interesting there is we we messaged the companies, told them you know we would file a complaint against you, but um, there is a guideline of how to do it the right way, and if you basically follow that guideline within the next two months, uh, we'll just throw away the complaint and pretend this never happened. Um, and there we had a success rate of about 40% just in this first interaction. So that companies were like, oh, okay, yeah, we kind of accept that that what we're doing is not right and we change it. And that was especially interesting because I think we, we need digital enforcement for digital violations. Um, most of the lawyers in this area and, and also the authorities are still doing a very analog system where each website is then manually checked and there is a manual complaint written and it's it's delivered and, and it's a very long process. And uh, we were more inspired on in how like speeding cameras work. Like if you speed, it takes a picture, it automatically calculates your speed, it automatically reads your license plate, it automatically sends your ticket in the mail, at least in, in Austria, that's how it's done. And no person, no public official ever checks that. Because these smaller violations, these like, you know, speeding, whatever, um, shouldn't require a lot of personnel, shouldn't require a lot of assessment. It should just, you know, work. Um, and that's a bit what we built here. And we also got some interest from data protection authorities to move in, in this direction, because given that there's really limited personnel, and even if you have the budget, it's just hard to find people that, that know the GDPR well, um, that could be options that we move more towards, like, how we do enforcement in other areas, like also, you know, your your financial um, department or your your finance ministry, usually uses all the data that they have to like see, okay, there's some something weird in that tax report versus the last year, or versus other people in in the same business, um, and thereby figure out who may not pay their taxes, and then focus their their energy, and and I think that is where um, there's a lot of potential in the GDPR. Um, and for the authorities there to, to to move in that direction. It definitely worked for us really well, and we'll move forward with that. Um, and I think a lot of people also realize that the last couple of months and, and half a year, there's more and more reject buttons on websites, and largely that, that comes from this litigation. Um, and it, it shows you that there is impact and you can solve these issues, and it's not like, oh, the cookie banners, you can't say no, and that's just the way it is. Um, actually, if they're done the right way, if they follow the law, if they follow the GDPR, they should be a nice and friendly, you have two options and, and you can choose your option. Um, and that is, for example, something where, where people also, to us, had very positive feedback because, as I said, everybody hates these banners. So we can pro prohibit companies from asking, but you can make sure that they ask in a way that's reasonable and that you have a yes or no option. 
Max Schrems is a privacy activist, lawyer, and the chair of the NGO NOIB. Thank you, Max. Thank you. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Abby Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening.